Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back, GC. We've got another week of court arguments to talk about. Uh, It's been an interesting and important week at the court. It certainly has, Zach. But before we get to this week's arguments, I wanted to start with a couple of new cases that the court has agreed to hear. In fact, the court granted cert in four new cases this past week. There's Roon v. United States and Khan v. United States, which the court consolidated. And these cases address whether a physician who's alleged to have prescribed controlled substances outside the usual course of his professional practice may be convicted of unlawful distribution under federal law without regard to whether, in good faith, he reasonably believed or subjectively believed that his prescriptions fell within the course of his professional practice. The court also granted review in another case involving several aspects of the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. And finally, the court granted review in Egbert v. Bull. This case involves several questions surrounding whether and when federal agents can be subjected to Bivens liability for various actions. One of the questions presented in the cert petition for this case had asked the court to reconsider Bivens itself, but the court did not grant review on that question. Zach, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us what Bivens is? Sure. So Bivens is essentially the federal analog to Section 1983. It would allow federal agents or officers to be held liable for certain violations of constitutional rights. But unlike Section 1983, which is a statutory cause of action created by Congress, Bivens was created by the court itself. And so there's a very robust debate right now surrounding Bivens how far it should extend, and in fact, uh, whether the court should reconsider Bivens entirely, uh, given that it was not a cause of action created by Congress. Well, turning to oral arguments, we had a number of them this week. Um, There were three that we're going to just briefly mention. Uh, First up is the FBI versus Fazaga. The issue there is whether a case involving state secrets must be dismissed pursuant to the government's state secrets privilege or whether that privilege is trumped by part of the Foreign Intelligence um, Surveillance Act. That's a mouthful. FISA is more commonly called, which permits a judge to hear certain sensitive cases provided uh, he or she does so behind closed doors. The case, uh, and we saw this at oral argument, displays this tension between preserving the secrecy of information vital to national security and allowing litigants in national security cases to present all the evidence that they need. And as a reminder, GC, this is actually the second case the court has heard this term involving the state's secrets privilege. Mm -hmm. Uh, So certainly a hot topic that's on the court's mind. I'll take the second argument case. It's Ramirez v. Collier. And you'll remember that this case involves a Texas inmate who wanted to have his spiritual advisor present in the execution chamber with him to have the spiritual advisor praying and singing out loud and laying hands on him during the execution process. Now, Texas said the spiritual advisor could be in the execution chamber, but that he could not pray out loud and that he could not lay hands on the inmate during the execution. The inmate sought a stay, an emergency stay of execution, arguing that Texas's actions violated both the First Amendment's free exercise clause and the requirements of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which is more commonly known as ARLUPA. The court granted the inmate's emergency stay, and it granted certiorari and set the case for expedited briefing and argument. 
Now, given the expedited nature of the proceedings, I suspect that the justices will quickly reach a decision in this case, and they generally seem sympathetic to the inmates' claims during the oral argument. Last up, we have Austin versus Reagan National Advertising. That case challenges an Austin, Texas city ordinance that permits billboards that advocate services provided on the same premises as the billboards, but generally forbid new billboards advertising services provided off premises. The challengers argue that because the ordinance discriminates against billboards on the basis of what's on them, it violates the First Amendment. And with that, Zach, we'll move into our interview. We are joined today by Fourth Circuit Judge Allison Jones Rushing. Judge Rushing, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Judge, I had heard that, um, setting law aside for a moment, you are actually a very talented musician. What, what, what's the story there? Well, I, in undergrad, I was a uh, voice major in addition to political science major. Uh, two very uh, useful majors <laughs> for a, a student. But I, I went in as a pianist, so I okay. play the piano and I sing and kind of uh, struggled through uh, the decision about whether to go to conservatory for opera studies or to law school, um, but decided at uh, some point in undergrad that I had to make that choice uh, and after some reflection, decided to go to law school, uh, which has turned out. Uh, it's been okay. But uh, I did, I very much enjoyed um, playing the piano and being a singer. We had a opportunity in, in my, I went to Wake Forest for undergrad, and uh, the very first opera that Wake Forest staged was when I was a student there. And it gave me a taste of what that's, what that's like. Uh, and it's a uh, it's a, quite a thrill to be on the stage performing. Do you still sing? Not very much anymore. Well, I sing every day. All <laughs> I have two small children, so but my singing now is very different than uh, than it was back then. I continued to singing with choruses, with symphony choruses, and things for a while, but uh, nowadays it's uh, mostly hymns and songs that my family knows. Mm. So uh, a while back, we had uh, Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod on the show, and she is also a singing judge. Have you ever uh, thought about collaborating between the two of you? <laughs> uh, I think I saw one of her performances, and it was <laughs> it was fantastic. So she's probably out of my league. Uh, I will say I I did have a an opportunity to blend uh, musical performance and law once uh, in my career so far. Um, at the when I was clerking at the Supreme Court, there's a, a Christmas party, and Justice Scalia sings the part of uh, Good King Wenceslas, <laughs> and someone has to be the page to his King Wenceslas, and uh, the chief uh, tapped me for the job, and I, I think I sang over Justice Scalia's lines. I, I just made a total hash of it, but it was a real uh, it was a real privilege <laughs> to have the opportunity. So speaking of your clerkships, you've actually had three of them, uh, no fewer than two for for members of or, or members of the court, whether on the court or before. Starting with uh, then Judge Gorsuch, uh, tell us about your clerkship for Judge Gorsuch. Sure, it was um, as you say, it was right out of law school, so that's a very you know just such an exciting time to go into a clerkship right out of law school and see. Um, you know, what it's like to put these legal principles into practice and to get to have a window into how the judge thinks and makes his decisions and uh, writes his opinions. And um, it was Judge Gorsuch's second term on the court, I believe. So, um, 
you know, he was in that the first exciting years as well. And um, so it was a real a real privilege to be a part of that. And I had great co-clerks out in the um, out in Denver as well. I I remember one of the things I remember about the clerkship was the way the the clerk offices were configured so that we were all kind of uh, open and close to each other. And it really facilitated the clerks um, working together and becoming good friends. So mm-hmm. it was a it was a terrific year out in Denver. Uh, do you have a favorite memory of your time working uh, for Judge Gorsuch? Well, this is kind of a, a non-legal memory, I guess. But he, being in such a beautiful setting, he you know would in, invi- invited us to enjoy the great outdoors, and um, you know we went on a hike. And but he he also uh, tried to teach me to fly fish, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, he's I'm sure a very good fly fisherman and was a good teacher. I don't know that I was a very uh, good pupil, <laughs> but so that's a, a memory I will always have is uh, uh, Judge Gorsuch trying to teach me to fly fish in the Colorado mm. River. You know, I've often wondered where, now that he lives in this area, where does he get his fly fishing fix, if you will? That's a great question. I don't know if he travels back west for that or not. So after you clerked for him, you also moved here to this area, clerked for Judge Santel on the D.C. Circuit. What was that experience like? You know, in some ways, the D.C. Circuit is a, a contrast with a regional circuit like the Tenth Circuit. As I'm sure you know, their docket of cases is very different, much more specialized docket, um, and you know, a lighter caseload. But the cases are each case is perhaps weightier. But you don't get a survey of federal and state law like you do on the Tenth Circuit. So the cases are very different. Um, and then Judge Sintel was uh, the chief at the time, and um, had been on the bench for um, for a long time, and so it was a two clerkships, but two very different experiences mm-hmm. in terms of the type of work that we were doing. And um, you know, and, and for for Judge Sintel, the the position of chief, I remember, really suited him. He has such a high capacity for for activity that having a full <laughs> docket of the DC search is not enough for him. Right? Oh, good that, heavens. That being the chief and then he was I think executive committee and just, you know, all of these things added onto his plate and he mm. still always seemed relaxed. So I had heard uh, um, I have previously interviewed Judge Andy Oldham, uh, who clerked for Judge Santel a few years before you did, I think. Uh, and he said that one of Judge Santel's favorite hobbies with law clerks was to take them out smoking cigars. Did you ever uh, join him in that hobby? He always said, everyone's welcome, no one's required. <laughs> um, so I always jumped at the opportunity to go out with him, but I never smoked. Um, I think he probably would have forbidden it, knowing that I was not actually a smoker. Um, but it was a great, you know, the amount of time that it takes to smoke one cigar gives you plenty of time for stories and discussion and advice and um, so it was a real treat to have that almost, you know, multiple times a week mm-hmm. opportunity to just uh, chat with the boss out in the semi-fresh air. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he he's done it all. He had been in private practice. He defended capital cases in private mm-hmm. practice. He'd been in AUSA, state judge, district court judge. Um, so there was no end to the stories of, you know, his time in all these different roles and uh just the good advice and uh, discussion you can have with them. Do you have a favorite story? Well, I won't retell his stories, but I will tell you um, 
So he's a North Carolinian as well. He's actually mm-hmm. from the same neck of the woods as me oh, over in the, in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And um, and he's a, despite having been gone for decades, he's still very fond and um, proud North Carolinian. And we were out to lunch. Um, so every Friday, the judge would, pretty much every Friday, he'd go out to lunch with his clerks at one of two restaurants near the courthouse. And we were out to lunch, and the topic of the North Carolina State song came up. Uh, people often erroneously think that it is Carolina in My Mind by James Taylor. <laughs> it is not. Um, so we were discussing that, and I mentioned that I will always remember that the state song is the good old North State because we had to sing it every school assembly uh, when I was young, and I still remember the song, And which then led to Judge Chantel and I singing a duet <laughs> of the good old North State in the middle of a restaurant, um, including the hoorahs in, in the chorus, which are uh, really attention-grabbing. <laughs> so, so after uh, clerking for Judge Chantel, um, and singing in restaurants. You then uh, re- went to the Supreme Court where you sang uh, in, in, in the court. <laughs> I have a theme. Uh, for Justice Clarence Thomas. What was that experience like? Well, it was just, it's a total privilege. It's a total privilege to clerk for Justice Thomas at the Supreme Court. As we've been talking about today, right, celebrating 30 years of his legacy mm-hmm. on the court, he is uh, one of the most independent and and influential thinkers um, on the court or in you know legal circles today, and so having the opportunity to study under his um, tutelage and learn from him and participate in some way in in what he's doing um, up at the court and serving our country was just a, a complete honor. And um, I'm sure you've heard from many other folks about what a just model human being he mm-hmm. is, in addition to being. Um, such a thoughtful jurist, and so he really uh, he really has a way to make each person feel like they are um, important and the and that what they're doing and the contributions they're making matter. Um, so it was uh, really fun to be his clerk. He has, he takes great joy in in the clerks, and which made our job mm-hmm. very joyful. One of the things I've noticed interviewing people who have clerked for Justice Thomas is that there's this uh, there's this adoration that goes above and beyond. Most other, you know, the respect that people have for most other judges. And I was wondering if you have any sense of why is it that he seems to be on a level above even the greatest other, you know, judges? Well, it's familial, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you love your parents, not just because they're good at what they do, but because of how much they've loved you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think he really builds that familial bond Um with the clerks and amongst the clerks, uh, they, they call it a clerk family, you know, and and so you do, uh, you know, part of it is that that our you know affection and, and admiration for him, and part of it is that he's, um, you know, it's it's much more than just the legal work, but you get to see how he interacts with other people mm-hmm. daily, and you respect and admire someone who um, treats other people with such um, humility and respect mm-hmm. and kindness and. You know, I think even outside of his clerks, he's just, you know, at the courthouse and in legal in those circles, he's universally admired and beloved for that, um, for those traits, uh, because he makes other people feel so special and so important. Is there a story uh, about Justice Thomas that uh, sort of is most memorable or impactful for you? You know, I could. We have lots of illustrations of what we've been talking about. This theme, I will tell you. Um, 
when when I was clerking, uh, there was a clerk for another judge or another justice who um, was down the hall, and the I think that clerk's mother was having knee surgery or something like that. And the you know Justice Thomas, as he does, stops and talks to every single person in the courthouse and knows them by name and asks how things are going and got you know found out about this clerk's mother and so he would stop down and check in on her and at one point he came down the hall carrying a pie and we said justice where did you get a pie said, well that clerk's mother baked it and sent it to him i think in the mail for justice thomas because she knew that he was so concerned about her and it's just an example of uh, a very small example of the ways that he's touched so many people just um even aside from you know, what his jurisprudence has meant for um, the rights and liberties of so many. Mm. You mentioned that Justice Thomas creates a tight-knit clerk group, that you had a really tight group with Judge, then Judge Gorsuch. Uh, how have your relationships with those former co-clerks shaped your career? I, you know, those clerk relationships are a valuable thing that you take with you from the clerkship. I, I encourage my clerks now to, you know, become friends and um, realize that, you know, not only will that make working together for a year more pleasant, but that you will be each other's kind of first professional contacts um, going forward in your careers as lawyers. Um, so as a practicing lawyer, I know, you know, my co-clerks and I would refer work to each other and mm -hmm. mood each other for cases and things like that. Uh, and even preparing for my confirmation, one of my co-clerks um, was part of the group that was helping me prepare for my hearings and things like that. So it was um, someone who was, you know, helping me along on that. Mm -hmm. I'll point out and for Justice Thomas, you know, he always every year takes the clerks on a, at the end of the term, we take a trip to Gettysburg and um, it's such a sort of pinnacle moment. And no matter how the term is gone, whether it's, uh, you know, you've been on the winning side or the losing side more often <laughs> in the cases, um, such a, he takes them intentionally, takes us intentionally as a reminder of what people have done, what they've sacrificed to, to serve our country and the ideals, American ideals. Um, he, he encourages us to be, be a defender of liberty, not merely a consumer. Um, and I think going to Gettysburg really reinforces that. And um, that's a nice moment at the end of the year also for the clerks to kind of, uh, you know, spend some time together outside of uh, criticizing right. each other's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so after your clerkships, uh, shifting into your uh, private practice, you went to Williams and Connolly where you had, if I'm correct, summered as a summer associate. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you, you basically spent uh, the rest of your career there before um, being elevated to the bench. Tell us about uh, what you did there. Sure. Yeah. I So I had summered at Williams and Connolly and I worked there briefly before going to clerk at the Supreme Court and, um, you know, very much enjoyed working with the people there. They have had a system called the free market system where um, young lawyers can, you know, pick the sorts of work that they want to work on. And I found that very attractive because so I could I could kind of craft my own practice. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a mix of um, trial work and appellate work. And then as I my career progressed. I did more and more appellate and Supreme Court work, but um, and a, a, a smattering of administrative law, okay. sort of district court challenges. Uh, 
But I loved the experience of having been on these trial teams. There's nothing like going to trial with, with someone. It really mm-hmm. is like going, I've never been to battle. It's the closest <laughs> that lawyers get to that. Um, uh, but even appellate work, you know, I'm sure you've, you've interviewed many appellate lawyers and they will tell you that, you know, working in a team with other folks is really where, um, where the, the best ideas come from for those cases. So, uh, so I did a, a mix of that sort of work. So besides the three judges you clerked for, uh, as you're coming out of clerking into private practice, who are some of your other mentors been? I worked uh, very closely at the firm with Canon Shamigan, mm-hmm. um, who you know I worked with from day one at Williamson Connolly, and um, and he's you know taught me how to be a good appellate advocate um, and how to manage teams of. Um, associates, how to manage teams of young lawyers, which is something that I do now right. as a, a judge. Um, he has a real knack for that. And so um, I would definitely count him among the my sort of mentors in the law. Uh, so when you were nominated in 2018 to the bench, uh, you were uh, one of the youngest federal nominees, uh, 37 years old. 36 years old. 36 years old. Yes. Uh, strong feelings of inadequacy from this side of the studio. <laughs> What was it like to be nominated to the bench, just generally, and then in light of your age? Well, you know the the nomination is, you know, you're you're just as surprised as anyone else, I suppose. Um, but the the whole confirmation process and is a is surreal in the sense that it's foreign to someone who's never been involved in politics. I've never been, I never worked for a senator or anything mm-hmm. like that, and so. It's a very foreign um, area that you're sort of thrust into uh, when you're used to, you know, working in legal doctrines, you know, <laughs> by yourself <laughs> or with your you know, teams of colleagues. And uh, but I was I'm thankful that we at the time we lived in D.C. and uh, and that took some of the mystery out of it. Uh, we for the confirmation hearing, for example, we walked from our house on Capitol Hill pushing the stroller, you know, up the hill to the Senate office and, you know, walked in for the hearing. And uh, and it was, the room was full. Every seat was taken. It was overflowing um, with friends mm-hmm. of ours. Um, we we went to a church here on the hill and the room was packed with friends from church. It was, they were overflowing into the hallway. There was a line to get in. Um, and it really, it really made the whole process it gave it a different character. Mm. Um, it was so encouraging to to come into the room and see all these familiar faces, and it, yeah, really, it really has stuck with me. What a what a wonderful moment that was mm. when I was sort of prepared for the worst, <laughs> um, and and then in the end, I guess you know, hardly any senators showed up. So uh, my <laughs> my friends vastly outnumbered the questioning senators in the end. Well, it sounds like that worked out pretty well for you. It did. Um, so it reflects, how have your first couple years on the bench been? They have been exciting. You know, I'm very thankful that I, I've been grateful that the, the court that I'm on is the Fourth Circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably talked to some other judges from our court, and I think we're pretty well known for being collegial. Mm-hmm. And people give the example, you know, we come down and shake hands with uh, attorneys after argument, which is true and is an example <laughs> of collegiality, but it it runs so much deeper than that. And I think the judges on the Fourth Circuit really do make an effort um, to maintain good 
friendships and relationships and um, they, you know, put the work into acknowledging each other and respecting each other outside of, um, you know, the cases that we sit on. And mm-hmm. I'm coming to appreciate more and more um, how valuable that is. And we see in some opinions from other courts how rare, mm-hmm. how rare that's becoming. <laughs> um, so I'm very thankful for that and that that's the court where I get to learn the trade and mm-hmm. um, and and develop my jurisprudence. Um, I have very thoughtful colleagues mm-hmm. to work with. How has the pandemic, if at all, changed your ability to sort of get to know and, and become collegial with your co-judges? It definitely impacts it. I so I I joined the court in the spring, and then the the next year, the next spring was the when the thing started shutting down. So, um, you know, I had a a number of sittings where we all traveled to Richmond and. Um, you know, one of the most valuable parts of that is the time outside of um, argument where we get to go to lunch and dinners mm-hmm. and spend downtime with your colleagues. And um, so, you know, I had about a year of that before the pandemic. And now um, we haven't seen each other in person for over a year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you phone calls and Zoom and all those right. things nowadays, but it it does make that difficult. So um, as the junior member of the court, I'm looking forward uh, to being back both because of the value of in-person argument, but also the chance to um, reunite, I mm-hmm. suppose, with my colleagues. So we talked earlier about uh, Judge Santel's cigars, Judge Gorsuch fly fishing, uh, Justice Thomas's uh, Gettysburg trip. How about you and your clerks? Have you formed any traditions? You know, so I've had, I'm on my third class of clerks and you know, each class, unfortunately, has been affected by the pandemic mm. in some ways. But at a minimum, we uh, we always have the clerks and their families over to my, to the house, to my house for for some sort of get together at some mm. point in the year. I think it's I like getting to know their families, and you know, usually they've already gotten together with mm. each other, and so they're already well acquainted and friends. But I think it's it's important that we get to know each other, you know, and their families outside of work, and they get a chance to see. You know the people who don't call me judge, <laughs> and get to know my family as well, and it helps build hopefully those sorts of bonds that mm-hmm. you know I, I've benefited from um, as as a Thomas clerk. Well, Judge, uh, I wanted to thank you so much for the time that you have spent with us, and to uh, send one last question your way: mm-hmm. uh, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be, and what would you talk about? Well, we have to. We have to take off the table the judges who I have clerked for, sure. the justices I clerked for. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take you way back okay. to a North Carolina uh, Supreme Court Justice, James Iredell. He was one of the very first. Washington nominated him and put him on the bench. Um, he was a supporter of independence, a supporter of the Constitution, um, lots of writing in favor of both of those. But he's – so he's interesting for those reasons, right? Mm-hmm an opportunity to talk to someone from the founding period. But he also, he was the dissenter in Chisholm, uh, the case that led to the 11th Amendment. Um, so he was the the one person who said, uh, you can't sue the mm-hmm. state. Um, and he had, you know, very good, interesting reasons that have to do with judicial power mm. um, and his other important um, opinion in, uh, in Calder um, was also about judicial power and, and where does it come from and what is 
how much do we have and how do we know the bounds of it? And so I would love to have a conversation mm-hmm. with him um, because he'd, he'd seen the founding, right, and, and was living through that and then had these, um, these important opinions and uh, was a, a North Carolinian, <laughs> I suppose an Englishman, but then a North Carolinian. <laughs> well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Zach, trivia time. Oh, boy. Here we go. (laughs) Hearing Judge Rushing talk about singing while clerking got me thinking uh, of other times that music has come to the court. So it's SCOTUS Music Trivia Day. Well, considering I don't have a musical bone in my body, uh, this may be a rough outing, but, uh, you know, go ahead. Hit me with what you got. (laughs) Okay. Number one. We'll start off easy. As you know, Justices Scalia and Ginsburg were great opera fans and even appeared in one together. What's more, composer Derek Wang wrote a whole comic opera about the pair and their relationship and their approaches to judging. Do you know what it was called? I think, wasn't it called just Scalia and Ginsburg? It sure was. Uh, The subtitle was A Gentle Parody of Operatic Proportions. (laughs) In fact, it wasn't even the only musical setting composed for Justices Ginsburg or Scalia. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Patrice Michaels, who is Ginsburg's daughter-in-law, actually composed several songs commemorating the justice called The Long View, A Portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in Nine Songs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well done. Number two. You're off to a good start. Famous last words, you see. (laughs) In 2014, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Elonis versus United States, which asked the court to decide what sort of words a reasonable person would regard as threatening. During oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts asked questions based on language from a famous rapper. Do you know what <laughs> who it was? I do. You know, it's not often you hear Slim Shady quoted uh, from the bench at the Supreme Court. Uh, so I believe the Chief Justice uh, was quoting Eminem's uh, rap lyrics. <laughs> That's exactly right. Not the sort of thing one expects to hear at the Supreme Court. The chief was worried that um, any rap artist could be prosecuted under the government's very expansive interpretation of a particular criminal statute. Because um, if you divorced these very uh, aggressive and violent lyrics from what he called their musical and cultural context, they certainly seem threatening. But it, mm. to him, uh, that seemed like a silly thing to do. Well, I feel like there's a new rap song in there somewhere, uh, but I'm certainly not the person to create it. <laughs> Nor me. All right. In the past, uh, I'm not sure if this tradition continues post-COVID, but the U.S. Supreme Court has held a musical tradition every spring. Uh, do you know what it is? I don't, but I would guess is it some type of musical talent show or something along those lines? You're not far off. You're not far off. Actually, they have a private musical spring concert. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, um, this tradition of theirs has sort of flown under the radar. And I don't know. Perhaps it has not continued uh, in in recent years because I I wasn't able to find any sort of more recent press about it. But they have a musical concert private for them and their guests. Uh, usually by some big names. Uh, they've had Yo-Yo Ma come, Barbara Cook, Rob, Bobby Short, uh, uh, famous jazz oh, wow. musicians. Yeah, so a little private concert for the justices every spring. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you know, do any of the justices ever join in and uh, perform a number with the, the musical guest or anything uh, along those lines? Pretty sure that is a SCOTUS secret that uh, uh, <laughs> the mere peasantry like you and I don't get to know. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right. 
this question, I guess, uh, you might not know this one since uh, you didn't know the last one. But That's always a safe bet when you're asking me <laughs> trivia, GC. Always a safe bet. But maybe uh, take a guess which justice began the spring musical tradition. And as a hint, I'll tell you that it was started in 1988. Well, that narrows down the field a little bit, I suppose, but I, I really have no idea. It was Harry Blackman. Oh, interesting. Yes. All right. Zach, I'm going to well, finish. Well, I, I will just say this, GC. It sounds like Justice Blackman was a man of uh, many talents. You know, I know we've talked about before he uh, often called into Chicago area sports stations as a uh, Harry from Chicago. <laughs> uh, and so I, uh, you know, he sounds like, like a, a real Renaissance uh, man. You know, I actually, while I was doing research for this, I was, uh, I, I immediately went uh, to um, Byron White because I figured you know, he was a football player. Right. He, you know, he was the, he was the all around. I can do everything sort of man. Couldn't find any evidence that he might have been a musician. So, oh, interesting. Perhaps the man's one flaw. Well, Byron White and I have that in common, at least. <laughs> <laughs> that you only have one flaw. Uh, uh, no, that we have no <laughs> musical talent to speak of. Apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Final question for you, Zach. Uh, this one's going to be a harder one. This uh, Supreme Court case involving the band Two Live Crew and two songs called Pretty Woman is the case that established that commercial parody can be fair use under copyright law. I think this is actually the – is it the Akuf Rose case? You're absolutely right. Campbell versus Akuf Rose uh, or Akuf, however you pronounce that. The band Two Live Crew – Campbell was the name of the leader – uh, produced a just absolutely terrible parody of that famous Roy Orbison song, <laughs> Oh Pretty Woman, uh, and successfully defended it as parody, even though it uh, made tons of money. And I think, uh, well, if nothing else, this is probably Weird Al's uh, favorite Supreme Court True. case. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad that uh, that musical theme trivia is over, GC, but it was uh, it was definitely full of interesting facts. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star review. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.